Previously on You Watched It Wrong. Well, today we're doing a very special episode. I'm too tired to continue. Ben Hur, turn off the dark. It predates continuity editing. Oh, fuck, Chuck Heston. It's a pig sitting on a toilet the wrong way. Well, people do like seeing horses run directly at them. Can I take us on another digression? I was in an antique store. Jesus Christ. Not especially relevant. Sure enough, it was Christian Slater. It was horrible. What are we doing to ourselves? <laughs> audience. Here's more of their stupid thoughts on Ben-Hur. It's a sled. He's dead. The box contains his wife's head. Vader's his father. They're allergic to water. She's his sister and her daughter. You watched it wrong. And we are back after several months, which you already heard if you heard the last episode. The previous episode and this episode have taken nigh on a year to come to you. No, half a year. Take that back. You're right. June to November. A millennia. Not really. Not really a millennia. More like five months. But if you count like the whole story of the Christ in there, working in there. Oh, yeah. It's a, big, it, it's a couple millennia. Exactly. It's a big, it's a big thing. Just, yes. just since the human version. We, we have to spend a lot of time on such a big, on such a big topic. However, we are woefully unprepared for, for this. And unrehearsed. And unrehearsed. Because um, we watched Ben-Hur 2016 in June. And now it's November. Of June of 2017. Right. And now it's November of 2017. So we're going to do our best because not to give any spoilers on how we feel about the movie, but we weren't so (laughs) jazzed about watching it again. So we normally say, please go watch the episode before listening to us talk about it. Not in this case. Not not in this one. This is the one. Don't. uh... Don't bother, please. This is the one that we probably, it wouldn't break our hearts if you, you know, just took our word for it. So, Ben Hur, 2016. I guess let's get into anything you want to say before we start? No, just that I'm not going to remember very much of this movie. So I apologize for all of the vague generalities that are coming your way. <laughs> but you, we, you can take some, some insight from what does stay with someone after, you know, one forgets everything. <laughs> <laughs> right. What are, what are the trauma? <laughs> what are the scars that trauma leaves? Um, I Okay, so we'll, we'll jump into it, but I want to say the first thing, I was looking over some old notes, and the first thing, I uh, remember my, my fourth note is 53 seconds in, I already hate this. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, now, as we stated before, if I'm correct, Siggy, you said that... Um, Ben-Hur was one of the more important films for you. The 1959 version, is, right. it's, it's just a movie I've always loved. So right. I have a great deal of affection for I had never seen it until, as the aforementioned June. And, and I did respect it. I, I can't say it's, I feel the same way, but I did respect the movie a great deal. And I'm very protective of it now when I started watching the 2016 version. And I, that's probably unfair to the 2016 version. But it, I don't think so. <laughs> but 
in, in I don't think so because the 2016 version I think is very consciously it comes across like it knows you know about the 1959 version. Yeah, exactly. It, and it's right? trying so hard to it's like you wouldn't be making Ben Hur in 2016 if you didn't think people were going to come see it because they already know that Ben-Hur was a great movie. Yeah, you've heard of it. Now you don't have to watch it <laughs> because we have modernized it for you. Right, exactly. And it does play into that whole fallacy of, of well, now that, we're, now that it's in modern times and now that we have better technology, we can make a better film. This sadly does not make that case. To that point about how they're so consciously aware that been, you know of Ben Hur is that the movie now begins with the fucking chariot race. Right. The right. first scene is the is the thing you know. It's like it's like it's like when you think of Ben Hur, you think, oh, that chariot race was pretty amazing. So when you go to Ben Hur, if you don't see that chariot race within a couple of seconds, you're like, what the fuck is this? What's this Christ bullshit we're watching? <laughs> I thought there was going to be people in chariots dying. There's like saying, don't worry, the chariots are going to be there. Yeah. And it, it's so <laughs> right. infuriating. It's like going to a circus. It's like going to a circus and like <clears throat> pulling the curtain back and like, here's the elephant. We'll bring okay, them out later. <laughs> you go rest for later in the show. Because right now we got some jugglers. Yeah. <laughs> it's really terrible. And then you hear Morgan Freeman start to do a narration. Because everyone loves to hear Morgan Freeman yeah. do narration. I have nothing against Morgan Freeman, all right? He's great at narrations. But when you start to hear Morgan Freeman do a narration, you know that somebody didn't want to think about anything. <laughs> they just were like, we have Morgan Freeman. Of course he's going to narrate this movie. Does his character have a compelling reason to be our guide through this story? No. No, not at all. Not Except at all. that he's Morgan Freeman. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I kept waiting. Yeah. I kept waiting for him to say, "The chariot race will take you along this path that's about the size of five football fields." <laughs> or nine. Um, uh, that whole opening montage—did it, it, it feel tacked on to you? Oh, it felt like it felt like a studio note. Yeah. After the first cut of the film, completely. That said, well, where's the chariots? Where's Morgan Freeman? Where's all this stuff? Yeah. You're like, and people don't understand. People need are gonna need to this explain to him why there's a Roman living with the Jews and what the what's the Romans, you know, what is the Roman Empire? <laughs> what is, oh boy. you know, like none of this is clear. It's all gonna be too confusing, and uh, and you've got Morgan Freeman in the picture. He's under contract. Why aren't we using Morgan Morgan Freeman to do narration? You know, right. it's, it, it just feels like very. Um, you know, you've got a hammer, everything's a nail kind of exactly. It's, it's not to service the stories. And, and I think that's, that's my, my two main takeaways from this movie. If you look at like what Ben Hur, the 1959 version did and how it did it, and then you go to, to adapt it for 2016 with modern day screenwriters and all the things they've learned. (laughs) All the choices. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> screenwriting being such an advanced <laughs> learned stage exactly. exactly is 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 that um oh if only billy wilder knew what we know now 
Think what he could have accomplished in, in if all, you weren't such an ignoramus in, in, living in such a benighted age. <laughs> in, in all fairness, there are some things that have been uh, vastly improved just by time and experience. I mean, I, I think a lot about... Um, do you remember the movie Addicted to Love with Matthew Broderick and Meg Ryan? Do you remember this movie? Uh, I remember. I never saw it. All right. Well, there's a part in it that I, I, I always cite as like the growth of, I mean, it's, it's, it's screenwriting. It's, it could be directing too, but regardless, it's filmmaking. And I, I was struck, this, this I think came out in the 90s sometime, I think. Okay. Matthew Broderick's father-in-law is in the house and he starts reading to him a letter written by his daughter, Matthew Broderick's wife. Okay. And instantly he runs upstairs and sees that all her clothes are gone and all everything is gone. And while the guy's reading, I'm sorry, uh, Matthew Broderick, but we don't, uh, I just uh, felt like I, we need to, to move on. And I just took Wait, so time. he's like, the father's still sitting like down in yeah. the living room while Matthew well, Broderick is run upstairs. Yeah, like, exactly. Well, okay, I can see you're distracted, but right. I'm just going to press on well, reading. They, they, they imply that this is not the first time that, this, that, that um, Matthew Broderick's wife has done this to employ... To employ oh. her father-in-law to break up with her boyfriend or husband for her. So she's the one who's addicted to right. love. So they, so so Matthew Broderick runs around and he sees all the uh, everything's gone and he immediately starts packing because in the letter she says I've gone to New York. So he starts while while the letter's being read, he's packing and packing and packing, and then he runs out the front door and they do a shot where they he runs down his porch steps. He's got like a deck, like a big, huge Midwestern porch. And okay. he, the camera focuses on his feet, goes down the stairs. And then the next shot is the same reverse shot, only he's coming up concrete steps from the New York subway. Really simple transition. Yeah. There you are. But I, was, I could not stop. I've never forgotten it because I never forgot sitting there in the theater. It suddenly struck with the idea that, wow, film has really grown because... A long time ago, even the good screenwriters would have movies and good directors have movies where they'd say, I got to go to London. And then you'd see the guy get a suitcase, get into a cab, drive to the cab, go to the airport, see the airplane take off, then see the airplane land. He gets in a cab, gets, <laughs> goes to where they go, then drives by Buckingham Palace. And you're like, they had to show you every step of the way to show this is how he gets from New York or LA to London. You don't need it. And so that might just be bad screenwriting versus <laughs> smart screen. I don't know. I can't name it anything, but I, I come, just come to think of it. I, I now, I, now, I feel pretty confident there are old there. You're going to find older movies that have examples of that kind of match cut. And I just, and I just thought of one right when I was saying it. Okay. Well, it's not really a match cut, but, in, in Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein, the one I'll always bring up. <laughs> it, um, Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein. Lon Chaney's in London, and he calls Abbott and Costello in, in America. And then later, he shows up. He just shows up. They don't show him getting in a plane and going everywhere. He just shows up over there and says, I've traveled all the way over here. That's all you did say. It's out of a box. Stamped ship to America. <laughs> so yeah, so I'm I'm stupid, I guess. It's just that's all there is. But 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 I Well you were it was 
the early 90s and you were young. I was young. I was still, I've said before, I used to have this dumb idea that, that when I was uh, a kid, like the, the kid was, I thought, oh, because I just watched, anything I watched that was old was Godzilla movies and Tarzan movies on the UHF station that would play out in Indianapolis, right? So I would just, not even the good Godzilla movies, I, I, I should state that, because the first, <laughs> the first Godzilla movie that we saw together at the Music Box, the unedited Arishio Honda, that was one of, that was a very powerful film. God. Yeah, what? Godzilla, I believe it's called. Oh yeah, <laughs> it's a it's a very powerful. No Raymond Burr, but it's a very right. and it's a very powerful film. Um, yeah, it is. I'll never forget seeing that. Even that stupid, obvious sock puppet coming up over the ridge the first time you see Godzilla. It's it's a little goofy. It's goofy. I mean, it comes up and you can see the wrinkle in the sock where his finger, the puppeteer's <laughs> fingers is, and it's like caving one of the eyes in a little bit weird. But it's still chilling. It's still chilling. I don't know how they... That's, it's just... I, I can't get over that. Anyway, I've gotten off on three different movies while I was trying to talk about a wholly different movie. Uh, oh, my point was, was that all I'd seen was all these UHF movies, Saturday afternoon, Tarzan movies and stuff. And it wasn't until I saw The Manchurian Candidate. And I saw it as a sophomore in high school, that late. And I remember seeking it out. I had to drive to like... Monroe County to get a copy. I don't know why I sought it out, but I did. And when I got it in that opening brainwashing sequence where Frank Sinatra and everybody and all the other army guys are on stage and they think they're at a ladies gardening party, but they're really at the military general's conference. And the way they keep cross cutting between showing the effectiveness of their brainwashing that they think they're at this ladies, New York ladies gardening committee and they they'll cut between just mixing it all together. And I just remember being astounded going, they, wait, they made movies like this back then? <laughs> and then I realized, of course they did. I'm an idiot. <laughs> I just thought that, that as technology got better, <laughs> storytelling got better, which to some degree is true, but very little. The basics of silver storytelling are have been around forever, and it was just child logic that made me think it's growing as technology got better. So anyway, where were we? We were oh yes. So Ben Hur twenty sixteen, I think suffers from the idea that when adapting it, adapting the 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 old the other movie, because they are adapting the other movie. They're not adapting Ben Hur. They're adapting. Ben Hur of 1959. The one people know about, yeah. <laughs> They're doing the Chuck Heston movie. So they make a bunch of changes, I guess, to quote unquote modernize it. And all those changes are what you would call quote unquote good screenwriting choices. Like, like take um, Masala. Like what? Um, in the original uh, movie, his relationship with Judah Ben Hur is incredibly intimate. Not entirely defined. It, they were friends. They were best friends. You kind of get the idea they might have been more than best friends. Maybe a little bit through their interaction. But the betrayal... Brothers with benefits. Right, brothers with benefits. And you, so you get this kind of... You just know the relationship is intense. And the way they portray... The way it, the betrayal is strong. However... In the new 2016 version, they decide, well, let's we make we're going to make the smart choice, and it is a smart choice in a way, to make 
Masala and Ben Hur even closer. Make the make make the make the betrayal that much more stronger by making them family. So in this one, Masala is an adopted brother to Judah Ben Hur, and in doing this, not only are they, not only have they made this, you know, it's like a hero and a villain if they know each other, is one thing, but if they're related to each other, that's stronger. It's a stronger choice. So we're gonna have them. So lit. he was a foster. He was fostered with the family yes. in the '59 version. Oh, right? was yeah. he? I didn't know. He, I didn't think he was fostered with them. Was he? I I thought he was. I thought he like grew up in their home. Well, I think you would know more than me, so I could be. To- I'm totally off base on this. But not adopted, so he's not. You know, he's not trying to put the moves on his own sister in the '59 version. Right. They were they they were like sisters in that they grew up in the same or siblings and that he, they grew up in the same house. But I, I think he was just fostered to that family. Okay, I must have missed that. Um, I, I but not adopted. So similar, but but different. Spoiler alert! I watched it wrong. Um. So anyway, but there are a lot of other choices where they're like, okay, well, we're going to, um, we're going to make and and, and I usually. I'm way more on board when they make the villain sympathetic. I think it's, I think it's way stronger of a choice. Mm-hmm. My favorite movies are the ones when the villain's right and the hero's right. They're both right. That, I think, is the mark of a, usually a great movie. However, one of the biggest mistakes they make in this movie, when they bring in this insurgent plot line, that Tirza is uh, part of this insurgent movement group that wants to assassinate the governor coming through um, and then Ben Hur reluctantly heals the wounded insurgents back to health because he's a humanitarian, but he's like, get the heck he, out of here or whatever. He grants them sucker. He grants, exactly. <laughs> and then when the guy's recuperating in his home, when the, uh, when the, the gubernatorial parade comes through, that person who was healing gets his bow and arrow and assassinates uh, the, one of the, 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 the local governor or the visiting or tries to, I can't remember which now, cause it was all very impactful. And, <laughs> and, <laughs> um, and then Ben Hur is, is accused because it looks so obvious that he's cooperating with the insurgents when he was not, mm-hmm. and he did not believe what they believed, but he, he did, was, he did, uh, offer them shelter and, and succor. Uh, yeah. And yeah, comfort and uh, aid, comfort and aid. So, but, and and, and usually, unfortunately, a movie, uh, an adaption, I I always like it when adaption has a different take on the material, because I think otherwise, why do it? But when it completely reverses the, what I felt to be the most important aspect of the movie it's remaking, then I realize it doesn't know what the heck it's doing. And to me, the stronger relational choice of making Masala kind of duped by circumstance to be like, it's obvious you are colluding with them and he's hurt and betrayed. And that betrayal, that feeling of that pain fuels him to punish Judah Ben-Hur, his quote unquote adopted brother. However, I found it to be much more powerful and a lot less rote in the 1959 version, when Ben Hur's sister accidentally leans on a tile, the tile falls off and hits um, the governor and knocks him off his horse. And when they come to investigate, 
investigate being a very light word. They come and arrest everyone. And then Masala goes up to the roof. And this is one of my favorite scenes in the movie is when Masala looks at it. And you can tell he's like, yeah, that's probably what happened. Mm-hmm. She just leaned on it and it fell off. And then he comes down, but he goes ahead anyway. And he goes ahead anyway yeah. and says, because the perception of that helps his cause so much more than it being an accident. Right. And so he's willing to sacrifice his brother, or his best friend, his best friend's sister, his best friend's mother. He's willing to let all that go because this helps him. And I found that to be a lot more timely to today and what we're seeing today in our own government than, than, than the update did. Why? It resonated more because it was like, look, I'm willing to let so many people die and suffer, even people I care about, if it benefits me. Yeah. That, to me, was a much more affecting choice. And the idea that um, Masala in 2016's Ben-Hur truly believed that uh, Ben-Hur did this or was conspiring against him um, just kind of makes it like the whole thing's a tragedy that all could have been avoided if he just actually knew the truth. Right. Instead of making a direct choice to be, I'm using this to my advantage and it's going to destroy the people I love, but I know what I value. And the thing that, that good screenwriting people will tell you is the murkier version of that, the more sympathetic to both sides, the more uh, morally ambiguous uh, choice is better. And I would agree, but it didn't work here because it over it muddles the overall message eventually of Christ's um, sacrifice that then affects Ben-Hur. Because if Ben-Hur can say, well, if Masala could just listen to reason and say, and if he could just believe me, all of this could have been avoided. <laughs> you know? So, well, uh, we got to get back to... Um how the, the Jesus part of this movie is different. Oh, yes, um, yes, 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 yes. But I want to follow up on Masala being sympathetic or the attempt to write him attempt. to be sympathetic. There's like three problems with that. One is, and I guess it's more in the execution than the concept. Well, okay, it's, the problem with the concept is that he never commits to being a villain. <laughs> like if he's the antagonist of the story, right? he's never actually... He's very short on making his own decisions in this movie. Yeah. Like they try to let him off the hook for everything that happens. Everything yeah. that happens is either a, a reasonable misunderstanding or, um, you know, he's nominally in charge. But there's this other guy who's constantly telling him exactly what he should be doing and it's the wrong thing. Right. So his his right-hand man, if I'm reading the relationship right, is the actual villain – <laughs> who every time, every time Masala is going to make a decision, this guy's saying, "You can't show them any sympathy. You've got to do what a bad guy would do." And like, "Oh, okay, okay. I'll do the bad guy thing." Okay. Yeah, that's your bad guy over there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, why just like cut Masala out of the plot because he's really just a proxy for this other guy with the helmet who's spouting all the, you know, <laughs> imperial. You know, towing the Roman line, and Masala's like, "Oh, I don't know what to do. I think I'll be nice." No, you can't be nice. Oh, okay, I can't be nice. You know, it's like, it's like he's so, he's so limp. He's like a yeah. wet rag. Yeah. The way he's written is that he's never actually 
he's never makes a conviction for any choices. Right. He's taken. Right. He's got other no than other than reaction to pain. Yeah. And and then it's compounded by the fact that uh, this this actor, you know, sad sack, <laughs> looks like somebody kicked his dog. <laughs> Like, I was I was going to say I, I don't want to say a, anything against that actor. I have no really reason to say anything against the actor, but but as soon as he was on, I was like, "That's Masala. What a miscast! Yeah. What a miscast! Terrible, terrible cast! Like this guy, right? This guy couldn't pass as a frontman in Oasis, you know? Like <laughs> he couldn't, you know? He's like <laughs> they picked him up from the worst Liam Gallagher cover band." Um, but I mean that that to that point that actually shows the intention of the producers. Either a they totally didn't care what they were doing and just wanted to cast someone they knew or 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 liked or wanted to get around or whatever. Or it shows that that was very purposeful and it was more, and more likely a very intent uh, intention to make him more sympathetic by casting as someone that was the underdog almost. In this it's so hard to have any sympathy for someone so fucking pathetic and annoying throughout <laughs> right. the entire movie. You know, like right. the the line that uh, my wife and I, when she bless her, she watched this with me. Um, that we had to go back. So uh, so we open with uh, you know the 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 patchwork montage where we see future. Uh, a little reel of what's going to happen at the exciting points in the movie, including characters with future haircuts that we're not going <laughs> to, we're not going to get to for a while. Summed but, up with bated breath. You know, is that like, this is like, uh, we're going to kind of give an idea of what's to come. It's like, no, here's just like scenes from later in the movie verbatim like these are the same angles we're going to use the same takes right <laughs> um uh and then uh we'll, we'll go from that to uh like a, a bad cgi shot of horses running in the in the circus to uh to two horses running in a field because now they're practicing they're practicing for chariot racing later even though they're on horseback right, right. and it's it's masala it's been her um, happy as young into, brothers yeah young brothers young 19 year old boys uh horsing around engaging in horse play <laughs> doing you know establish that they're trash talkers you know giving each other the business a little bit and then uh, <laughs> they cross the finish line and then a special effect that just made me laugh because it's so bad, his Ben Hur's horse just like face plants, <laughs> like right. out of nowhere. Just like I'm done. I'm done running. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so okay, something <laughs> happened to his horse. So uh, Masala jumps up in his horse, checks on Ben Hur. Ben Hur's like got a little bit of blood in his forehead, uh, and then uh, Masala carries him back home on his back because uh, dangling down. So now Ben Hur's face is now all drenched in blood because I guess the ancient Romans had discovered uh, the science of elevating the wound. Right. <laughs> or if you still have a good horse, maybe put the injured guy on the horse <laughs> and 
and bring him home that way. Only one of your two horses collapsed. You don't have to carry him on your back. Just saying. Maybe consider that. Oh, oh no. So he gets him. So he gets him home to the palace. A minute. Everybody, come here. Everybody, mama, mama, sisters. I hurt my friend. And they're like, oh, what happened? What happened to him? And he goes, and here's the line of dialogue. This is what the screenwriter, using the modern techniques of screenwriting, have learned. <laughs> when he brings in Prince Ben-Hur bloodied on his back, and they say, what happened? He says, there was a rock. <laughs> Not, he fell off his horse. (laughs) You know, there was a rock uh, in my hand that I was throwing at him. You know, like, you really wanted wanted his mother to go, who was played by the woman who plays Vanessa in Daredevil, by the way. Uh, The the mother would come and say, that explains nothing. (laughs) Right. And and yet, but there's no question, no further information. Yeah. What did this rock do? Well, I would only more confusing answer. Don't I, need to know more. I would make the argument that the reason why that line is there and so horrendously stupid is because they don't want any reasonable person would start to tell them what happened and how and why and what he did to get him there. They wanted to make sure that he was admonished for this incident rather than praised for saving his brother or carrying him all that way. Right, so they wanted to make sure that the the mother would be mad. You've done enough, and creating this kind of resentment and stuff between them. So, what what could he say as an explanation that would give no information about what happened and lead them to believe that he did it, caused it? There was a rock. <laughs> I might have gone for the same effect with, "We were racing. <laughs> Why were you racing with the prince? Right. You can't take risks like this. He's got to." responsibilities well there was supposed to be racing there was a rock how many times have we told you not to race mom it was a rock but there was a rock this time (laughs) oh oh yeah why did you say so in the first place (laughs) also take a look at um oh we'll look at ben Hur himself who's utterly forgettable in 2016 um except he talks like this a lot like you Suffered a throat injury. <laughs> or he's interrogating the Joker. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he, again, uh, what would one would say would be a smart choice was to have Judah Ben-Hur be a isolationist, be someone who's like, I don't want to be involved. Why do you want to learn that? Or why would you do that? Everything's fine. How could things be better? And then he's brought around to realizing there's a problem through the insurgents telling him all these things are wrong, and he's like, don't rock the boat. And then he gets accused and becomes one of the people that he was ignoring, and then is forced to uh, relate. Whereas, you know, I kind of, watching that type of story, which is what one would say, this is the journey that we take our audience through so they can relate. Whereas, in the 1959 version, Judah Ben-Hur was a perfectly, he wasn't someone who required a dramatic arc. Like, he was pretty much a fully moral and competent person to the eye, 
uh, in the beginning and through no fault of his own is accused of conspiracy and has all this stuff happen to him despite the fact that he was a good man other than, you know, having slaves. <laughs> so, yeah. But take... only ones he inherited. And he only ones he inherited. Instead of free if I could. Or if I fall in love with one of them. And basically saying, look, you can be all this and stuff like this is still going to happen to you. And that's going to be trying. It's going to make you want to take revenge. You know, I, I find it much more interesting when a good man is tempted to do bad things rather than someone who is generally pretty shitty has to be convinced to be good. <laughs> yeah. You know, maybe it's just the times we're in now. I mean, Groundhog Day, I love it's someone who's going through a massive self-improvement phase. It's someone who's an asshole who learns not to be an asshole. And that's great. But maybe it's because I've lived with that my whole life and seeing what we have in our current current life right now. I'd rather see stories about, you know, good, competent, seemingly morally right people being faced with not much other option other than to go against their own values. That makes a lot... That's more compelling to me at this moment and then much more interesting when at the end it's like I feel the sword fall from my hand there was no I feel the sword fall from my hand moment in this movie for sure no no and you know and Charlton shows uh the Charlton Ben-Hur shows signs of that like when he gets under the galley like you know in that first right he's not really seeking revenge he's just seeking to survive you know right. and to get back and save his his mother and sister so when he's in the galley, he passes up an opportunity to kill the captain in his sleep, mm -hmm. right? Right. Uh, or the admiral, and then he's you know basically repaid with his own life. So it's already like there's the it's set up that mercy, the the value of mercy um, uh, on both hands, uh, and then that scene isn't even re recreated in the in the 2016. That character isn't there at all. It's gone. He's gone entirely. Right. Well, the that's who the um, the, the Gior Mormont guy is playing. Oh, right, right, right. But they go right from his initial inspection. He arrives, he does an inspection, and then the pirates attack like right then. Right then, I right. think. Like so, it all gets compressed so in, into one. In theory, that afternoon. If you if you if you take the idea of a character being someone who you introduce and then is involved with our main character and then later becomes literally his adopted father. I would say that character does not even there, <laughs> which is a very interesting, <laughs> yeah, right. which is a very interesting, it's reduced. yeah, it's a very interesting point, uh, a thing to look at is why that's not in there. Did they just think that this was the boring part of the movie and we can cut it out when really, like you just said, introduced the idea of mercy. Mm -hmm. And it, I think mm -hmm. that, I think the movie really, really suffers by not having that whole chapter of him saving and sparing, kind of enslaving <laughs> the admiral of that boat and and, cha and changing him around. If the theme of the 59 version is is mercy, and I'd say that's what it is, mm -hmm. what is the theme of the 2016 version? That's, Does it have one? I think it has one. I, I could be wrong about this because I don't see it as having anything really except one thing to say and this is I, I and forgive me if i said this in the previous episode but my biggest takeaway from that movie and this movie 
was I found it very interesting that the studio movie that was making biblical epics for the mass market in the 50s, its movie, which was A Tale of the Christ, Ben-Hur, A Tale of the Christ, it doesn't really promote Christianity, I don't think. I don't think its message is, you must be a Christian. I think its message is, Christianity posits mercy and, uh, and these elements, and look how that helped this person through the trauma of his life. And so it it's, makes it a universal message. Makes it a universal message. Yeah. Rather than saying, if you want to have a good life, fall behind Christianity. Whereas, right. 2016. Here's the one true faith, people. <laughs> is, that, yeah. is that really. But, weird, it that way? but yeah. weirdly, weirdly, 2000, Ben Hur's 2016 does less to talk about Christianity. In fact, it avoids it a lot. Um, but ultimately, its point seems to be fall behind the leader of Christianity. So, and, and from what I understand, and what some people have, have spoken to me about when I said we were doing Ben-Hur, biblical epics don't do well now. Uh, they do much better in Europe these days, mainly because Europe sees them more as historical epics rather than religious epics. So Ben-Hur 1959 was a studio movie made by a major studio, and 2016's Ben-Hur is a studio-distributed independent production. Now, that's not a pejorative, but it is made by a bunch of less-seasoned group of disparate players, and it shows, because it's kind of a mess. Yeah. I mean, like, right now we've been seeing this resurgence in biblical epics of Kingdom of Heaven, Gods of Egypt, and they've all bombed. Gladiator was probably the last one to do so with any crossover appeal, and it minimized its religious impact, I think, considerably, because it wasn't a historical epic. But back in the 50s into the 60s and 70s, the biblical epics gave way to the historical epics, and the, uh, the biblical epics became way less popular by the 1960s, and Hollywood would see a lot more of its domestic return on historical epics rather than biblical epics. So it all kind of fell away to the side, and now with the rise of the Christian right, they think, oh, there's a market there. We'll start making these biblical epics again, and they're just not being, they're not working. And I think Ben Hur 2016 um, is certainly made with that intent. I think it's made by, if I'm not mistaken, I think its producers have said that to be a message to bring God back into the cinema. So this was a definite plea for Christianity rather than mercy. And I think that's one reason why it fails pretty spectacularly instead of saying christianity is good because we do mercy and mercy is universal it says no you should do christianity because christianity is christianity <laughs> yeah right right yeah so let me ask you this this so getting right so talking about how the themes <laughs> are really developed there's one scene hopefully you remember how this the dynamics of this go, we had to watch it twice in a row because it was such a confusing scene. <laughs> it's early in the film. Ben Hur's walking with Esther. Mm -hmm. I think they're already married at this point in the Which story. They, they get married 12 minutes into the movie. Yeah. And as opposed to two hours. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And they're having a, a, a disagreement about 
she's she's saying that they should be doing more to resist the Romans. That the Roman occupation is cruel. Mm-hmm. We then we get to like see examples of soldiers like stealing fruit or I don't remember what right. like right in front of them, right? Right. Uh, or maybe that comes at, at the end of the scene. And Ben Hur is arguing with her, saying, "No, there's no point in resisting. We we should just wait them out or whatever." I don't remember exactly right. how he says it, but he's arguing against her. And then they encounter Jesus, who like overhears them. And then Jesus is basically now saying what Ben Hur was just saying: <laughs> "We have to be forgiveness." And then Ben Hur starts arguing with Jesus, and now he's he's arguing. For resistance. It's a v- in the same fucking scene, right? It's a very confusing scene. Do you remember this? I do, because I, I wrote down a line that made me howl with laughter. When he said, when Jesus says something about you should love your enemies, and Ben-Hur says, love your enemies? That's very progressive. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Whew, I can't take it. That, that right. I was like, right. going, this is right. such a... And Esther, oh yeah, and Esther is like saying like, you know, as a feminist who walks the streets of Jerusalem with her hair uncovered, I think we should be resisting the Romans. Right. All the screenwriting techniques we've learned. That that, that reminds me of uh, in the was it the Patriot? I I don't think I've I saw the whole movie. I just saw the the infamous clip where Mel Gibson has the line where he says, "Am I against taxation without representation?" Yes. Yes, I am. <laughs> All right, we've clipped and also this. also for the right to bear arms <laughs> for a well-ordered militia. I have cut this out of my history textbook and pasted it into my screenplay. I remember once you, you commented on something I wrote. Also, don't tread on me. <laughs> Better not tread on that guy. I mean, that's not to say... I'm I'm looking through my notes and I'm seeing things that I actually genuinely liked. Like is a line where Judah says, we have different gods, Masala. And I wrote, I like that. I kind of liked the fade from the chariot. We talked about the chariot race to them practicing before the goofy horse thing. I liked it, but... The whole show the end at the beginning trope to get you excited doesn't allow you to be saddened or shocked about where it's going, but rather to see the seeds of the inevitable. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, Part of me is starting to think that like, oh, this is all just a show. Look, we know what we're doing. You're going to feel this way later on, so don't be surprised. But rather, I would rather be shocked by a betrayal than know it's coming. I don't know. Just it, it... it it bugs me. <laughs> it can be done well that way. Oh, it, I mean, that's how Hamilton, the, the structure of Hamilton is that way. Oh, yeah. Know? Okay, yeah, sure. I mean, there there are things, there are movies that do that beautifully. Absolutely. And because it's poignant to know this is where it's going, what could happen. And and then there are other times when it happens where it just doesn't have faith in the audience to follow it. Like, I, I one of my favorite movies of all time is Tucker and Dale versus Evil. I love this movie. I love this movie. That's a good movie. If I had a critique, I would say they don't need the the thing at the beginning. That's kind of a, basically to say scary stuff's going to happen. Just hold on. Just trust us to follow the damn movie. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Well, it follows 
does that. Too. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it does. But though it doesn't do the chronological thing. Right. It's always dangerous to show, like you say, that's well said, planting the seeds of the inevitable. Like mm-hmm. sometimes that's good, you know, like mm-hmm. my favorite movie, Sling Blade. Yes. Oh, God, that's such a great Part movie. of what's great and tragic about that movie is you figure out it's not like told to you in the beginning but mm-hmm. like midway through the movie you can see what the inevitable conclusion is going to be yeah and then then the like the, the real tragedy is how yeah exactly that that, that comes, comes to, to to pass but you can see it it heading there but it's never it's it's never here's what's going to happen you know there's no it doesn't have morgan freeman coming like, <laughs> You can see the trajectories of the characters, and you know where right. it's, it's it's heading. You know, it's, it, it, I guess it's foreshadowed in the beginning, right. but it's never it's never spelled out. But it's not Morgan Freeman in a voiceover telling you who the bad guys are, rather than showing you who the bad guys are. You know, right? It's you figure out you be like, oh, this is yeah. Sling Blade is it might it might even be the first drama that I went to see multiple times in the theater. I saw it like four or five times in the theater. It, it's Wow. It's so good. Actually, it it and Breaking Bad kind of inspired a, a list that I want to make weirdly. I keep asking people, what's the most emotionally moving act of graphic violence you've ever seen in a movie or TV show? <laughs> and the two that I would nominate at the top of the list are, you know, Carl killing Dwight Yoakam. Is that it's this horrible graphic violence, but it's so also weirdly touching you know, it's it's a moment of self sacrifice. It's a moment of self sacrifice. Like, <laughs> it's gonna... murder as self sacrifice. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. It's amazing, <laughs> and I love how Dwight Yo- Dwight Yoakam is really good in that movie. For a country singer, he's that's a he's a great performance. I think I love how he just sits there. Well, do if you're gonna do it, <laughs> but then right in the moment, Carl, wait. <laughs> it's it's amazing. He's amazing, and then um. Breaking Bad is a great moment where you've seen all of Breaking Bad, correct? Yes. The scene where where, where Jesse when Jesse learns that these guys have uh, when they've made a truce to not mess with the kids and that these guys have went out and these uh, drug dealers that work for Gus have gone out and killed one of the uh, killed a kid because he was a witness. And uh, so Walt knows that Jesse is going. Walt has given up on Jesse, and then Walt goes and he, see, he hears the news and he knows Jesse's going to go try to get revenge. And so as Jesse's walking up with a gun to the two drug dealers on the corner and he's going to get killed. And then that Pontiac Aztec runs in and runs them both over. And then Walt gets out and plugs them both in the head and splattered with splattered with uh, blood. He says, run, run. And I start bawling. (laughs) I'm like, that's the most gruesome act of violence. And I'm so touched. (laughs) Like what he sacrificed and gave up for Jesse. <laughs> that was the episode Half Measure, right? I think is that the one that begun begins with yeah. Well, I mean, I didn't know that was Half Measures because Half Measures Half Measures is one of my favorite episodes. It's either Half Measure or Full Measure, but I think it's that's the end of Half Measure. If I'm that yeah, must be the end of Half Measure because Half Measures begins with Jonathan Banks' star making monologue. That's what plants the seed for Walter to make that decision yeah. to go and right. And, uh, no more half measures, Walt. I swear that 
you know, because even before that, I know knew Jonathan Banks' face as a character actor. This is Mike the Mike the Hitman. Mike Herman Trout, yeah. Yeah. And that monologue made him showed that's why you should always any character actor that's been around for years, who if they're on your show, write them a seven page monologue. You know, because show the world shit tiny wrists like a little bird. Yeah. And he, wrists like a bird. <laughs> I saw I saw that monologue and I was like, this guy, this will never be forgotten. This guy's now yeah. a star. After forty odd years in the business, he is now a star. And deservedly so. Um, he's also, if you remember, he's an airplane. Did you know that? No. He's an airplane. He is like probably with hair. Yeah, he is hairy. He's he's at the end. He's in the air. He's in the aircraft control uh, when the when the plane is about to cra- do a crash landing, and he's like, he's at three hundred feet. He's at two hundred feet. He's at eight hundred feet. He's all over the place. What an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> but back to Ben Hur. Uh, um, do we have to? Okay. <laughs> I think we've got a lot. Yeah, I think we've we've basically. Co- I mean, oh, that's right, that's right. It just uh, just real quickly, I'll go through these. Uh, despite having twenty minutes of setup of the bond between Marcella and Judah Ben Hur, I felt less between them on their reunion than when Chuck Heston just first met Masala. Like when they, there's they just zero chemistry between the actors. Right. It's like, and they're trying to give it like a. It's, it's trying to be like feel like a soap opera to me. Yeah. You know, the guy who plays Ben Hurry just seemed like a soap opera star. Does not have Charlton Heston's uh, sense of intensity. Does not uh, strike you as a guy with the spirit to survive. Um, not three years right. in a galley, but in this version, I think they say it's one year. For some reason, they shortened the time he spends in the galley. Yeah, I wish Jack Houston was. I know I've seen movies with Jack Houston in it, but he never registers with me. He's not bad, but. He's not bad, but he's not a he's not a leading man. I mean, he's yeah. It just, just good looking guy. Good looking okay guy. Actor. Gotcha. Yeah, there's nothing wrong. I have no complaints other than I just wasn't drawn to him. You know, not everybody can be a star. <laughs> exactly. Oh, that's no right. Offense. I will. I will say where Jack Houston is way superior over Charlton Heston is when uh, Judah Ben Hur experiences physical pain. <laughs> <laughs> I that is he's way better. Chuck Heston's still the great at emotional pain, but physical pain he hadn't quite got a handle on. Well, it's pain is such an alien sensation to it. <laughs> um, the two the two um, boat galley scenes, the boat battles. What would you? Mm-hmm. How, how would you compare? I, I I remember thinking that technically the the newer one was better, but I. I can't remember a damn thing about it, whereas I remember 53, 59s pretty well. Again, I don't think they give him the number in this one either. The, no, they don't. The, giving him the number is only in the, the Charlton Heston version. Right. Number 47. Um, well, they don't bring him in to say, hey, you want to do my, be one of my ultimate fighting champions. You know, they don't do that either. Um, <laughs> That's right. <laughs> they kept it all in the galley, right? Did they ever it's- see outside the galley? Yeah, it's all which is kind of good. It's it's a it's it's a it's a good choice. It's a good choice to keep the perspective down in the in the galley where you really have no control over what's happening, and it kind of heightens that sense that you have no control. Mm-hmm. 
and that you're just like a cog in this war machine. Uh, did, were they even chained? Was the chaining? They were, no, but I don't. I don't remember. They he wasn't left unchained intentionally, so he has to like he was not. free himself from the chain. That's what's different. And I remember he's freeing himself from the chain when he's underwater, and I forget. That's and, right. And that's, that's the right, thing, that's right. man. That's the that's the thing about that scene is that when he when the boat goes down and he's trying to free himself from the chain underwater and he's brought a dead leg up to him and he's trying to kind of you know get out of it and however he gets out of it see I don't even know and like when he comes up to the surface it's like oh okay well that happened you know it, it didn't it didn't feel like I mean in this one it was like the guy came by and unchained him and Bruce and Bruce where'd that come from <laughs> Charlton Heston has to struggle with this idea of why why did this happen why did they show me mercy or what would eventually be what would eventually spare his life mm-hmm. whether it was known or not but why would they do that and that that's so rich yeah and then the one he's just like okay the boat went down and i got out right. through no thought or conundrum i've nothing i have to wrestle with and does nothing he, i have to i now i just gotta does he treat even try to Unchain the others. There was something different. No, he doesn't. Yeah. Well, I don't remember. I I don't think he did. I don't think he did either. He just saved himself. I could I could be wrong about that, but I don't remember that. And I remember a lot of the things in that galley scene in '59 were that were really howering of him trying to unchain people and the people trying to get the the things off of them when it was just cutting their skin raw. Right. The panic. Uh, yeah. Panic. All that was. But in that one, it's like, all we care about is you'd have been her, so who cares? You see a lot more... he's going to be a Christian. <laughs> <laughs> you see a lot more of the rowers getting killed, I think, uh, spectacularly. Yeah, oh, absolutely. It does, you know. Uh, but it's very, like, CGI heavy. It feels like a video game cutscene. It is telling that you you see more of the pe- them getting killed spectacularly than them getting saved spectacularly. See, it says a lot. Yeah. They did bring back the um, a detail from the 1925 version where you see a Roman captive oh. get lashed to the bowsprit of one of the pirate ships, uh, and then he gets rammed, oh, wow. gets rammed into the hull. Oh, damn! So that was a nice little, that was a nice little homage. Yeah. Nice little thing. Yeah. So you know, it was, it was a lively thing. I thought it had some good ideas. I thought it was. I didn't, you know. They try to do the uh, oh here's the elaborate um, camera movement like long take oh yeah I didn't think they added anything Not really. you know it's just too showy but yeah so uh, the galaxy scene happens and then he uh, just washes up on the shores of Morgan Freeman's camp and <laughs> Morgan Freeman the guy who is concerned about there's something weird that happens in this scene too is. Like the most logical thing in the scene is Morgan Freeman identifies him immediately as an escaped galley slave. Never once contemplates is like worried about the danger that this guy poses to him by being there. Mm-hmm. Never once considers just returning him to the Romans. Like he only gets convinced. I'm remembering this right. He only gets convinced to, to keep Ben-Hur safe when Ben-Hur demonstrates that he can calm the horses. Is that right? I feel like that. Yeah. So he's like, you're you're a galley so. slave. Like I, I'm I'm only interested in money. I'm not messing with you. Whereas if he's interested in money, like return him for a reward. I don't know. Like there was something like right. really like a yeah. like, illogical about that scene for me. Whatever. It yeah. was stupid. It's a stupid movie. <laughs> 
Not to digress again, but I, the only note that I have that I haven't read Please. is that the whole the whole humanizing of um, Masala and that, that whole di- the whole relationship they set up between Judah Bihar and Masala and the parents, weirdly, is exactly like uh, the beginning of Hacksaw Ridge. <laughs> is it? Uh, I, I unfortunately saw Hacksaw Ridge, um, which uh, I, I was... You mean unfortunately? I, was, I thought uh, you liked it. Well... No, I, I, I ultimately didn't like it. I don't think, but I, when I watched it, I was, I, I was upset that I was excited to see it <laughs> because I liked the idea. I liked it, I, what the trailer put forth was moving, and I was like, I agree with this. I think this is a good thing to celebrate. But I was angry that it was who it was coming from. I didn't want to, oh. you know, like, oh, Mel Gibson directed it. How do this seems somewhat false, or it seems cloying, or uh, trying to rehabilitate himself, curry my favor, yeah. rehabilitate his favor, right? And then when I see the movie, it's way too fascinated with the people blowing up, and not quite. I still haven't really figured out if the movie be- believes what it's selling, mm. but. I still appreciate that they wanted to celebrate this guy, his nonviolent contribution to the war outside of the war itself. You know, I, I found that a good thing to celebrate, but I still couldn't feel like I could trust it. But the, uh, the beginning of the movie, there was, an int- there was an interesting scene where the child that grows into Andrew, Andrew Garfield is wrestling with his brother and it gets too rough and he's really upset and he picks up a brick and smacks him with it. No. And they rush him into the house. And just like Masala, he's stuck outside wondering if his brother's going to die, what he could have done differently. He's at fault. He's like, and, and he's an outcast now. Like now his parents aren't looking at him right. And so I realized, I was watching it going, I just, I think I, because I'd just seen Hacksaw Ridge like a few days before. It's the same movie. It's the same scene. It's exactly the same scene. I don't know what that says. Chariot race. Should we get right to the chariot race? I guess so. I don't know what to say about it. Kind of boring. I remember the. Yeah. You. Yeah. You. You. You can't help while watching it, and this is where it suffers, especially in direct comparison to the to the 1959. I think, but you can't help but watching it mm-hmm. thinking this is all this is all CGI. Like it just feels. <laughs> It just feels so weightless and artificial, and you never feel a sense of danger for anyone involved. You know, I liked right. I liked the um, establishment of the kind of characters of the other chariot racers. That, okay, that was a strength yeah. of the scene, where it's a little bit a like a, a cool like pro wrestling Royal Rumble <laughs> intro or something. Right. You know. Because the other one, they only had like that guy's that guy's of note because he's got a green hat, right? You know, it was like that's what the other one did. But this one had a little more of a, oh, be careful, that guy. That guy looks scary, but in a different way. And that, yeah, that yeah. that was good. And they're from specific places, and they look like they might actually come from those places. You know, this is that was that was cool. <laughs> I I liked that. Yeah. Um, but then once the the race starts, it doesn't. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It just people are doing things that are like too improbable 
a little too it's a little too super heroic. I don't know. Yeah. I couldn't get into it. It was just ugly CGI, like you know the dirt flying and stuff. It just looked so cheap. It looked cheap. That was yeah. that was a big problem. I also think it's a big problem when it's by nature of the fact that it's recreating one of the most iconic scenes in cinema history. It is not that necessarily that it has to live up to that one, but because you can't look at it as its own thing. You know, you, you are constantly comparing it to not only either the scene you saw and loved or the thing that you've never seen, but everyone's talked about being great. Yeah. And so you're like, oh, well, this is supposed to be great. And you're looking at it, and, and, and the, the, the thing that I'm... Uh, I mean, one, you got the one. You get, back in 1959, you weren't sitting in the theater going, oh, well, these guys are in danger because it's CG. <laughs> you know? Right. You weren't doing that. But at the same time, you know, one thing I like about CG is that guys aren't really that much in danger. <laughs> yeah. But you got to make it That's look like they nice. are. You got to make it look like they are. Right? Right. You got to convince exactly. the... The, Otherwise, the mind's eye. Just like you got to convince the audience that you're in love with this woman. You know, you just, it's the same. You got to do especially it. Especially at your wedding. And so, like, uh, you know, <laughs> they've what always, are you saying? Everyone's <laughs> come all this way and brought gifts. Um, exactly. But so, in the 1959, though, the 1925 version has a spectacular scene. It's the highlight of the movie, and it's great. You know, it's very impressive. Mm-hmm. And then 1959, um, it like models it. It takes it as a starting point, and then just tries to push it f- further. You know, it's funny how they all have the same. They all use the device where you you're counting the laps by the dolphin, uh, the engraved oh, yeah. dolphin being tipped. That that's that's in every version. Um, which is pretty cool. Hmm. But yeah, like, I don't know. I mean, they weren't going to line up uh, 20 horses and run them around the track and risk killing a bunch of them, right. which is, feel feel pretty confident no horses were harmed in the making of this movie. So that's a plus. No humans, right. like you say. That's a plus. Um, we're probably at any real risk of, you know, if, if one of them fell, they'd be falling off of one f- green foamy thing onto a different green foamy thing, right? Well, if any stuntmen out there are listening that uh, we're in a lot more danger than we are giving you credit for, please let us know. Write to us at you watched it wrong at you watched it wrong on Twitter. Well, yeah, if you are in danger making this movie, that's to your credit, and it's really to the director and producers' discredit that none of that thrill was was conveyed to us, the viewers. Right? It just feels very weightless and artificial right. and digital and. Phony, and, uh-huh. and I, I feel like, uh, could I, am, I, am I wrong about this? Having five months, five six months in between viewings, Masala is drug off the field dead. Right? He doesn't have a scene afterwards with Ben Hur. I feel like there's a scene where they prop him up like some weird scarecrow, <laughs> and they're like walking him off, going yeah, 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 and like Judah Ben Hur gets to look at it and feel remorse that his former friend has being ridiculed so oh bad. yeah because the crowd is like mocking him he's mocking right him. right and right. that was that was good i liked that but i also thought at the expense of having that moment of watching your friend die hating you and not letting go of any of that hate you know yeah that was 
that that I missed. Oh, again, a, another problem why the stakes seem so low. You know, in the 25 version and the 59 version, the guy playing Masala is like a cut specimen of man, right? Yeah. Uh, like imposing, yeah. right? And so you believe he could be a kick-ass charioteer and could, you know, if he whips you with the whip, it's going to hurt, right? Right. Whereas... <laughs> Toby. Right. Whereas T- Toby, the art school <laughs> dropout, <laughs> like... You cannot convince me this guy is going to beat me at anything. You know, I'm no physical specimen, but I don't look at him and feel intimidated one bit. (laughs) Right? I know we're doing a lot of Toby bashing, but uh, he had, I will say he made me laugh a great deal in Kong on Skull Island. When they're flying up with their helicopters and right before his helicopter gets hit with a palm tree, he goes, is that a monkey? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm sorry, but... Yeah, he's not all bad. He's not all bad. He'd probably be great playing, like, a dope. Because he looks looks like a mopey dope through this entire movie. No. When he's supposed to be, like, this angry, conflicted, tormented, intimidating ass-kicker. General. Right. Yeah. People have certain strengths. He shouldn't have been in this role. It's, it's a, it was mis- he should have been in another it's role. Miscast. I, he was miscast. Yeah. S- switch Toby with the guy who keeps telling him to do the wrong thing. <laughs> Who's, you know, being all forceful yeah. and make the forceful guy saying, uh, think he's doing the right thing, but he's not clicked And then this guy who like, seems like he's not as powerful, but he's like pouring poison in his ear. Like, you know, right. You know, like uh, if you now, if you show mercy on them, I, I, I'm not going to respect you. I'm like, I, I must command respect. So I will do, you know, I have to get right. your respect. You mopey dope. He would be a lot better as an Iago than a Masala. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. And, 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 and that's not I mean, granted, what you just described there is a more forgive me to say, rote choice. This is what we're more expected to see. But at the same time, I don't know how anybody would follow Masala. Whereas Stephen Boyd, he would be in power for a long time, unfairly, but still be in power. He could hold that command, whereas I don't think Toby could for a second. I mean, Toby, I'm sorry. Whereas 2016's Masala could. Right. (sighs) Okay. Should we get to the Jesus bit at the end? So yeah, let's get to the uh, crucifixion because that's what we... And unfortunately, I have even less to say about it this time than for the last one, which... I don't even remember it. I don't even remember Yeah, it. I don't it remember it at like all. Passion of the Christ light. Um, I did think about that, yeah. It, 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 I haven't seen Passion of the Christ, but I haven't seen clips and read about it. It just seemed like they were trying to remind you of that movie and be as authentic feeling as it somehow. I don't know. That's a, but I think that's, that's my only observation. Oh, cause I don't remember much else. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry to be distracted. I just came across a revelation. <gasps> um, the book of revelations. I was, well, I was incredibly wrong. Uh, Masala does not die on the field. They have a scene after the crucifixion. Oh, that's of, right. He doesn't die at all. He's like lying and injured he, in the hallway. 
and he crippled. comes to see him, and they they reconcile. That's right. They hug each other so powerfully, and I'm like, okay, it's just like his yeah, leg. I he like... loses his legs, or his, his legs get messed up, right? Right. He gets like, yeah, he's he's. He says, "You've made me a cripple." He's holding a knife to him, and yeah, he's about to kill him. That's but right. Jack, but uh, Ben Hur is like, I, "I'm here. I'll carry. All I can do is carry you." And leave and one set of footprints hugged. on the beach. <laughs> <laughs> so again, not that we're cruel, heartless bastards. We don't want people to reconcile, but it doesn't play to the story themes of the story. So, I don't know. It just, it, it's not memorable. I remember the end of 59. I did not remember this at all. I didn't remember it at all either. Because I didn't want them to be friends again. I didn't care, you know? Like, you got to make me care. If you wanna... <laughs> I wasn't rooting for anybody in this film. I was rooting for it to be over. Oh, yeah. And Oh, yeah. They go, <laughs> they go horse riding together again. Uh... <laughs> Are they still talking... Trash to each other? No, they just got haircuts. Are you scanning through the? Don't look back, Judah. Yeah, I am. Oh, see, that's a good idea. Yeah, because I don't, I don't know if I could take it otherwise. <laughs> the last line is Morgan Freeman saying to Judah and Masali, he "Goes, don't look back, Judah. Their life is all ahead of you." <laughs> and then they go running off, and they're running, racing their horses like they did before. It would have been really funny if one of their horses just face planted. <laughs> <laughs> And then credits roll. Wow. So yeah, so it it almost seems like this movie glosses over the crucifixion too. But let me take a look at I mean Hey, let me ask you this. When Jesus is crucified, there are a lot of people that stay, right? Judah Ben-Hur is not the only one that stays. In fifty nine people stick around. In fifty nine, yeah. Yeah. When Jesus is crucified, a lot of people he's one among many. Right. It's one of those shots that feels very carefully, it's very painterly, uh, like you were saying. Yeah. Like it, it's very carefully composed and so, the whole tableau. So, yeah, this one makes it all about uh, he dies and everyone just kind of turns around and goes, well, okay, what's for dinner? And Judah Ben Hur is the only one who's affected, if I recall correctly. That ain't right. Right. That ain't how it happened. Everyone just turns around and leaves and the rain happens and the blood comes down. Okay, so they do, I think, do the healing of the lepers. They're catching the water and then... I didn't remember them, how they did the leprosy angle in this version. Yeah, I don't either. Uh, How could this be? We are healed. We always thought, should we do more bad movies? Movies we don't like in the series, but it's more fun to talk about good movies. You'd think it'd be more fun to talk about bad ones, but the good ones you could remember better. (laughs) So there's more to talk about. That one's you're like, I don't know, it's just... Just kind of stinks. Okay, we did it. Do are we? We did it. We did it. This is it. We finished. We're f- four Ben Hurs. <laughs> I don't know if we have any final thoughts on Ben Hur 2016 to say. Uh, what do we learn from this? I don't think it was a mistake to try to remake Ben Hur. I think it's possible to do an interesting remake of it. And I get really annoyed at people who reflexively say that remakes are a not creative choice. Mm-hmm. However, if your only motivation is to bring Christ back into theaters, 
and then you go on to change like really important core aspects of Ben Hur. <laughs> It raises the question why you chose Ben-Hur to bring Christ back into theaters. Yeah. I think it's, I agree with that 100%. Awesome. It's like, what? Thank you. Am I certified fresh? Why? (laughs) You are certified fresh. If you're trying to bring Batman back to the theater, don't make a Superman movie. (laughs) (laughs) Idiot. All right. Well, this has been another overlong episode of You Watched It Wrong. Uh, please visit us on all the things. We're at you watched at you watched it wrong with a U for you on Twitter. Uh, you can write us at you watched it wrong at happypanic.net. So thank you for joining us once again. And remember, if you can't think of a catchphrase for the end of your podcast, you you watched it wrong it wronged.